This is CME on ReachMD. The following activity. The HPV data is in. What do the newest updates in screening mean for your patients? Is provided in partnership with Omnia Education and supported by an independent educational grant from Roche Diagnostics. This activity previously aired as a ReachMD Live broadcast. Prior to beginning this activity, be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statement, as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill. The cervical cancer screening practice environment is continually changing, but patients remain confused and unsure if these new approaches are better or even less safe than the cervical cancer cytology that has served them well for so many years. Live from the ReachMD studios in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and joining me today is women's health expert, Dr. Thomas Wright, Jr. from Columbia University. Dr. Wright, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here tonight. Well, I'm excited that you're here. We have so much to talk about. Why don't we go ahead and jump right in? So, Dr. Wright, what I'd like you to do is to kind of give us a little bit of an overview of the latest cervical cancer screening recommendations from the United States Preventative Services Task Force. Glad to. These are draft recommendations. I really want to stress that at the beginning of tonight, which is they have been prepared, they've been put out for public comment, and they are still in draft form. So the Preventative Services Task Force is currently modifying them, so they may change a little, but if history is our guide, they usually remain about the way which they go out in draft form. So these guidelines have actually changed dramatically the way we are going to screen our patients who are 30 to 65 years of age. Most of you know the previous guidelines, which were from the 2012, both from the American Cancer Society, ACOG, as well as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. And they said that for individuals who are 30 to 65 years of age, you could screen in two different ways. You could do cytology every three years, or you could do co-testing. That is testing with both a PAP and an HPV test at a five-year interval. So you would do it every five years. And we had harmonization across all of the groups in 2012 with the same recommendation. Right. Now, we had in 2014, the FDA approved one HPV test for HPV primary screening. Mm-hmm. And that approval was specifically written to be for women 25 to 65 years of age, and it had a three-year interval. After the approval, ACOG, the ASCCP, and the Society of Gynecological Oncologists looked at the data, and they said that this was a reasonable way to screen women 25 to 65 years of age. So I think many of us who thought about what was happening with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, thought that they might add HPV primary screening, that's HPV screening alone, to women 30 to 65 years of age, but they would probably also keep co-testing as one of the screening methods. Well, it turns out they did a comprehensive review of all the large large clinical trials globally. They did a meta-analysis. And they did a lot of modeling studies looking at the economic and the health outcomes impact of the different screening methods. And they decided, based on the data, that they should not include co-testing as one of the ways to screen individuals who are 30 to 65 years of age. 
Instead, they said you could either do cytology every three years or you could do HPV primary screening, that's HPV alone, at a five-year interval in this age group. Mm -hmm. So big change in the way we're going to screen. No, absolutely. And you talked about a number of age groups, primarily 25 to 65, 30 to 65, right. that kind of general range. You know, what about other age groups? What are, what are our thoughts about yeah. that? I didn't talk about that because our recommendations actually remain pretty much the same. Okay. There should be no screening at all under the age of 21. Okay, right, which is what we've been doing. Vaccinated or unvaccinated, no screening. Mm-hmm. Over the age of 65, in individuals who have had a 10-year history of negative screens, then they don't need to ever be screened again. They're out of the screening pool. And the age group 21 to 29, it stays the same. It's a PAP every three years. Yeah. Okay, good. And I think that's really good to kind of remind our, our viewers and our listeners about the things that haven't changed, right. right, in addition to the things that have changed. So that's good reinforcement. So going back to, you know, the new recommendations, given the new recommended screening intervals, and now let's bring it back to the patient side. We're in the office. We're with our patients in the room. How do we actually communicate these changes, these, these new guidelines to our patients? It's going to be tough. And there are a couple of reasons it's going to be difficult. The first is, and I hear this every day, that we keep changing the guidelines. And this is coming from doctors and from (laughs) clinicians. They say, why do you have to change the guidelines every three or four years? And the response to that is the guidelines are changing in response to data. We have large clinical trials coming out all the time. We're getting better and better data, and the guidelines have changed in response to the data. The data for HPV primary screening right now is incontrovertible. Mm. There is just tons of data, and most countries are moving in that direction. Mm. When you have your patient in front of you, though, that is a harder discussion because the patients are confused. Older patients grew up being told, have a pap every Every year. Every year, And so they walk in and you say, well, you don't need a pap for three years. Right. And they think, why are you telling? think you're doing something wrong. Absolutely. (laughs) And if you tell them, you don't need an HPV for five years, they really are going to think. So this is going to take time for all of this to evolve. When you think back, we first got co-testing approved by the FDA in 2003. Uh And in 2007, it wasn't being done very much. And it wasn't really until around 2012, 2013, that we ended getting a big uptake of co-testing. So it took a while. Yeah. And it took H- a while. HPV primary will be the same trajectory. It'll take a decade, I mm. think, for people to really be comfortable with it. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a really sort of interesting topic, and I'm glad we're talking about that, too. As a family doctor, you know, these are the questions that we are often faced with, as well as GYNs, et cetera. So, um, so Dr. Wright, I really want to thank you for that overview. I think it was a really great foundation thank to you. really kind of jump off and really get things started. Uh, now let's turn to questions from our audience. So our first question uh, comes from one of our viewers. It says, um, Dr. Wright, it says, uh, he or she says, do you think co-testing should continue to have a role in screening? Just by way of disclosure, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I will be reading (laughs) abnormal paps. I am a GYN cytopathologist by training. So asking me if I think (laughs) co-testing has a role. But in fact, co-testing has had a long role 
in screening. It is very effective as a screening method. I think many of us were surprised that co-testing did not remain as a possible screening method in the U.S. Preventive Services guidelines or the draft guidelines. Clearly, cytology alone, I personally don't think should be used to screen women over the age of 30. Okay. It is much less sensitive than HPV-based modalities. Mm -hmm. So I think every woman who's screened over the age of 30 should have the option of having HPV for screening. Yeah. It could be a primary screen, which is very effective, mm -hmm. or it could be a co-test. Mm -hmm. Both of those are highly effective. So cytology, I think, still has a role. We're also using cytology as a way to triage HPV-positive patients. One of the big issues when we go to HPV primary screening is what do you do with the HPV-positive woman? We've got genotyping. We look for HPV 16 and 18. Right. We're getting new extended genotyping coming out. But we also use cytology to screen those patients who don't have 16 and 18. Right. So it's important in reflex. Mm -hmm. It's also very important for screening the younger women, right. the women 21 to 29 or 21 to 25. Mm -hmm. Cytology is a preferred approach. That's because so many of those women are HPV positive. Mm -hmm. Probably almost 30% of women between the ages of 21 and 25 will be HPV positive in the United States. So you're not going to use HPV to screen those women. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a great answer in terms of being thorough and kind of going through the rationale for these things too. Right. I think that's really helpful. We have another question. It says, Dr. Wright, how long do you think it will take for other organizations to adopt the USPSTF guidelines. It's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Prior to 2012, we had a lot of competing guidelines. So the family medicine doctors, right. they AFD tended or... to follow U.S. preventive services. But the OBGYNs and the women's health clinicians, they tended to follow the American Cancer Society and ACOG, ACOG recommendations, right. which were very linked together. What we did in 2012 was a real effort was made to harmonize the guidelines mm. and to get ACOG, ASCCP, all of the groups to combine and have the same recommendations. Yes. I think there is a lot of concern now that since the U.S. Preventive Services did this independently of all the other societies, hmm. that we may not have harmonization going forward. Interesting. And it is quite possible that a group like ACOG or the American Cancer Society may look at the same data, but they may end up weighing the data slightly differently. Right. Because the differences are actually quite small. Uh, it's like co-testing. Is there a real reason not to include co-testing in national screening guidelines? The reason the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force said that co-testing should not be included was that you end up with almost the same level of cancer prevention mm -hmm. with primary HPV testing as you do with co-testing. Right. But the difference is you use half as many tests with HPV primary screening per, per woman's life year saved from cervical cancer, and more importantly, you use a lot more colposcopies and procedures. More procedures, interventions. And interventions. Right. And so as part of their health economic modeling, 
they modeled it for the number of procedures for each of the screening methods. Right. And it was hard to justify co-testing when that was one of your metrics mm. of a potential harm. That's interesting. Yeah. Risk versus benefits and Risk versus how benefit. we weigh data. And it's, it's kind of interesting what you're talking about, how different organizations may look at the data slightly differently or weigh different things a little bit differently to develop their outcomes. I agree. And they also, remember, have slightly different perspectives. Right. That's very true. U.S. Preventive Services that's Task true. Force perspective is for the public health. Yeah. Population. And screening yes. is a population public health event. Yeah. Whereas American Cancer Society mm -hmm. or ACOG, they are much more patient focused. Mm -hmm. So I think we may end up with different guidelines this time around. It'll be interesting to see. That definitely will be interesting to see kind of what comes down the pipe. So thank you for that. Uh, we do have another question. This viewer says, after hysterectomy with CIN2 or 3, what is the follow-up? The follow-up is that woman needs to be screened for the next 20 years. Ah, okay. So if she's 55 years old, she needs 20 years of screening mm. with one of the accepted approaches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, very good. This is another question that we're just getting right now is um, the idea of over-screening. And, and one of our viewers asked, which I think is a very frank and honest question that we all as clinicians need to be thinking about is, What's the real harm in over-screening patients who desire a more aggressive approach? Maybe that woman that's not comfortable with the every five years or the three years. What's really the harm in, in screening more frequently than maybe is, is recommended? At the individual patient perspective, what will happen is she is at increased risk for having detection of an abnormality. Okay. She's more likely to be HPV positive, cytology negative, and have a 16 or an 18. You're screening her more frequently, mm -hmm. so you will pick up those transient infections right. uh, because people get exposed to HPV all the time. And right. part of the reason for having an extended interval when you use HPV is to allow transient infections to clear. 50% mm. of new HPV infections clear within one year. Mm. So if you screen at three years, uh. those infections are very likely to disappear but if you screen yearly, which I see all the time yes. in the Northeast, yes. co-testing on a yearly basis, you're going to pick up those transient infections. Right. You're going to do more colposcopies, and the data is quite clear that you don't give better protection against invasive cancer. Hmm. The outcomes. The outcomes are very good at three years. Right. Right. You know, and I think that's also, like, I'm sort of thinking about this as you're talking about it. I think that's a really good reminder about how long, on average, it may take for HPV to clear. You mentioned one year, you know, which may be contributing to why we say three years and five years, et cetera. I think as clinicians, that's important for us to remember that there is rationale and there is data and science behind why these, these recommendations and guidelines exist the way they do. Right. You know. The other important point for women 30 to 65 years of age is that once you have had a negative HPV or a negative co-test, you come back in and you're found to have positive HPV, either as a co-test or as primary screening, your risk of high-grade disease is much less than if you're found HPV positive the first time. Okay. So in well-screened women who come in and are HPV positive, risk drops considerably if they have a history of being HPV negative. 
So that's why you really don't want to screen frequently with mm -hmm. HPV. Yeah, point well taken. Uh, we have another question. Uh, does clinical trial data on cervical cancer screening reflect outcomes in medical practice? Speaking of outcomes. <laughs> yeah, this is difficult because most of the data that we have comes from large, either randomized clinical trials, all of which have been done in Europe, or from large non-randomized observational trials in the United States and North America. There's one from, there are two from Canada. We've got the large Athena trial from the United States. And those are very different settings mm -hmm. than your practice right. or our listeners' practices. Right. Because patients are incentivized to come in, clinicians are incentivized to make sure the patients get followed up, right. and everything's done correctly. Probably the best data that we have on what really is happening in the real world mm -hmm. comes from Kaiser Northern California. In 2007, Kaiser Northern California made a policy throughout the entire healthcare system that they would co-test every woman 30 years and older, and they would do it at a three-year interval. So they have now over 10 years of data looking at outcomes after co-testing. It's over a million women have been years of follow. A million women have been published in this. Wow. So it's a huge, huge database. And what they find is very clear, and it's been consistent now for a number of years. In 2014, they publish what was a woman's risk with a negative screening test mm -hmm. of having SIN3 or invasive cancer diagnosed mm -hmm. over the ensuing five years. If you have an annual PAP, your risk of having SIN3 or cancer being detected is approximately 7 per 10,000. Hmm. So it's quite small at a one-year interval for cytology. Okay. And that's kind of the baseline. That's what the American Cancer Society and ACOG told people for years. Mm -hmm. Come in yearly. Yeah. So that's kind of the best scenario and what we've told women to expect. Now, if you do HPV primary screening, HPV alone, but you do a three-year interval, you have exactly the same risk. That's interesting. There are seven cases per 10,000 wow. women. So HPV at a three-year interval is equivalent to yearly cytology. Hmm. But now the U.S. Preventive Services isn't calling for yearly cytology anymore. Hmm. What it's saying is, let's do three-yearly cytology. Risk goes from seven with yearly cytology to 19 with three-yearly cytology. Hmm. So you get you know, almost a tripling of risk by going from yearly to every three years. Hmm. Now, if we look at HPV and we extend the interval out, we go from three years to five years, which hmm. is what the current U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is calling for, your risk now goes up to 14. So you have 14 cases. It's not a huge jump, sure. but it's more than seven. Sure. It's double. If you look at co-testing done at a five-year interval, which is what the old guidelines called for, the risk was 11 cases okay. per 10,000. So it's a little lower than what we get now. Actually, mm -hmm. now we're increasing risk with the new guidelines compared to the old guidelines. Not dramatically, mm -hmm. but a little bit. That's interesting. 
That's interesting, and it looks like we have one more question. It's kind of a two-parter by one of our viewers. First part is, what will be the impact of the HPV vaccine on disease, and how will this then impact cervical cancer screening in the United States and internationally? So let's start with part one. Or? Yeah. What the impact is going to be really depends on how effective we've been at vaccination. If you go to Australia, and we've got good data now coming out of Denmark and Australia and the United Kingdom, where they have been able to vaccinate 70 to 80 percent of young women because they have school-based vaccination programs, what they have shown is dramatic drops in high-grade disease and in condylomas after vaccination. The United States, we don't have a school-based vaccination program. We wish we did, but we don't. So we have less across-the-board vaccination. So the impact is less, Mm -hmm. although we have measurable impacts now in the United States. So if you are in Australia, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. You are going to screen, begin screening at an older age. Mm -hmm. They've just changed their screening program to not screen until age 25. Because of how high their vaccination rate is. Because of how high the vaccination. There's so little high-grade disease. They are going to screen a five-year interval with HPV, Mm. which in a low-prevalence setting of high-grade disease makes a lot of sense. Mm. In addition, most countries which have looked at cytology versus HPV testing in vaccinated populations really believe that cytology is going to start to perform poorly in a low-prevalence setting of high-grade disease. And when you think about it, cytology really is very subjective. Mm. Technicians sit down, they look at the slides, they try to decide whether or not a cell is abnormal or not abnormal. If you drop the prevalence of high-grade disease, Mm -hmm. they're going to be looking at lots of normal slides, more than they are now. And therefore, the performance of the test is going to get worse. So most epidemiologists who've looked at potential screening methods in vaccinated versus unvaccinated They say cytology probably should go away in a heavily vaccinated population, and HPV should become the test of choice. Interesting. But we aren't there in the United States. Sure, sure. So how are our vaccination programs going to impact screening in the United States? Well, the new recommendations don't talk about vaccination, Mm -hmm. a vaccinated population versus a non-vaccinated, because we don't have a vaccine registry. Mm -hmm. So you have a woman come in for screening. You do not know if she really was vaccinated against HPV, how many doses she got, and at what age she was vaccinated. Right. So we're not going to be able to change how we screen over the next few years until we get a very high prevalence of vaccination or coverage of vaccination in the United States. Once we get that, I think we will also start screening at 25 and older, Mm -hmm. and we'll continue to screen at five-year intervals. Very interesting. Thank you so much for that. We've gotten a lot of great questions from you guys, and we've covered a lot of wonderful information, and I can't thank you enough for that. And before we close out, you know, I just wonder, Dr. Wright, based on some of the questions that we've gotten, do you have a final take-home message for our viewers tonight? I think there are two points that really came home from these questions and that come home when I speak to clinicians. First is, this is going to be a slow process. People are still wary of HPV primary screening. Patients are a little wary of it. And it's going to take a few more more years before people get really comfortable with it. Mm. The second is, things are really complex. 
and it's going to take lots of education to providers to make them comfortable with the changing guidelines and it's going to take even more discussion with your patients mm -hmm. to get your patients comfortable with the changing guidelines. Right. I think those are good reminders and kind of a good forecast perhaps for what's to come. Right. It's going to take even more time to yeah. counsel women when you tell them, well, we're not going to do a pap. We have this better test, HPV. It's recommended. And if you're negative, I don't need to see you for another five years. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, with that, I'd really like to thank you, Dr. Wright, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful discussion, reviewing the, the latest cervical cancer screening guidelines, as well as answering your questions. And I'd also like to thank you all, our audience, for your participation in this program. We certainly couldn't do it without you. And live from the ReachMD studios in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, I'm Dr. Jennifer Caudill for ReachMD, encouraging you to be part of the knowledge. This has been CME on ReachMD. The preceding activity was provided in partnership with Omnia Education. For more information on this activity or to receive your free CME credit, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for joining us.